All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Let's grab our Bibles. Let's go over to the book of Acts. We're continuing our series uh, in Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In one of our Bibles, we're going over to page 926, page 926, Acts chapter 17. I became a follower of Jesus in the 80s, um, which was not a great time for Christian subculture, to be honest. Um, Christians were still at that point reacting to the cataclysmic cultural changes that took place in the 1960s, and their response for the most part was um, both to condemn popular culture and copy it, which is a weird thing to do. But that's what happened in the 80s. They condemned popular culture and they copied it. I was told as a new believer that if I listened to secular music, which at that point I didn't even know what secular meant. I thought it just meant good. Um, but if I listened to secular music, I would end up worshiping the devil. And so we ended up with charts to help us out, things that said, if you like poison, you should listen to Striper, right? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're fine, I'm really. Um, in fact, the guy in the middle with the dark hair, I swear, is Ted Cruz at, at a younger um, for real, I think he, anyway, uh, the chart would say, if you like Madonna, you should listen to Amy Grant, which is nothing alike. If you, if you like you too, wait, are they a Christian band? We're not sure. So you better just be safe and listen to Petra, right? I mean, it was, it was one of these things where if you want to become holy, you gotta, you gotta consume what Christians produce, not what the world produces, right? Garbage in, garbage out. That was the phrase that I heard a lot. And, uh, and so you were only supposed to consume kosher Christian stuff. The problem is it didn't make anybody holy. It just made them weird. Um, it, 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 it set them apart in weird ways from the broader, broader culture. It, it reduced their ability to relate to people that were, that were not part of that subculture. Here's the thing, you guys. Evangelicals saw cultural shifts taking place around them in America that they didn't like. And, and it made them afraid. It made them feel threatened. It made them feel angry. And evangelicals, as a result, became very political. And they started using phrases like, we're in a culture war. A lot of bad things grew out of this era, and, and not just bad art. Um, one of the most damaging things that grew out of this era was that it turned the mission field into a battlefield. Instead of approaching the changing landscape of culture as, as, as a new gospel challenge, something to be studied and, and understood and, and uh, approached on, on the, the mission of the gospel, it became a force to be resisted, an enemy to be attacked. Victory wasn't measured in terms of grace, it was measured in terms of power. Today, 30 years later, the church is still struggling with this, this same tension. If we want to see God do incredible things in our time, in our culture, in our community, we need to engage our culture as missionaries, not as mercenaries. We need to be looking to embody and communicate the message of God's love, not our moral indignation at people who behave differently than us or have different values from us. 
Today's passage is going to dig into some of this, and, and, um, and so I'm looking forward to digging into it with you. Background. Last week, we saw that Paul, the Apostle Paul, got kicked out of Berea. Uh, he had planted a church there. He had been sharing the gospel. There was a group of people that really didn't like him and were following him from city to city and just causing trouble. And, and so they escorted Paul several hundred miles south down to Athens uh, to just kind of get him away from those folks so that the trouble would die down. He is down there now in a hotbed of culture and philosophy, waiting for Timothy and Silas to come join him. And, and he just can't help himself. He just can't help himself. He just starts sharing the gospel. And uh, we're going to pick up with that this morning. All right, so we're going to be looking, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among among whom were Dionysius the, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of the Lord. All right. This is the most complete example of one of Paul's sermons we have uh, in, in the book of Acts. Um, it is, it, Luke really goes to, to great pains. I don't think this is everything he said in the sermon, but I think this is an outline of the essential things that he, he covered. And so we're getting an incredible peek into how Paul preached to a non-Jewish world. 
See, when Paul arrived, he, he, he started sharing the gospel in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, which was his normal custom, right? And, and, and that would be uh, uh, fairly easy in the sense that, that they were working on a common ground. And, and then during the week, he would go into the marketplace. The Athenians were always interested in new ideas. They were philosophical and debate-oriented. They loved to explore and to talk. And so he had no problem striking up conversations and sharing the gospel with people who thought very, very differently than him. I want you to think for a moment about how different these conversations would be. When he met with the Jews, they didn't agree with him about Jesus being the Christ, but they started with a commonality that allowed the conversation to take place fairly easily. They, they were both monotheistic, right? They, they believed in one creator, omnipotent God, who, who was personal and involved in human history, to whom they would have to give an account, that they were actually responsible for their lives and their actions before this God. And this God had, in fact, intervened in human history, given a series of covenants of promise, promising that he would send a hero, a Messiah, into the human story. So really, their, their point of conflict came down to whether or not Jesus was that Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And so he could begin, uh, really, toward the end of the conversation with them. Now, they didn't agree with him, but they had a common language. In the marketplace, the challenge was much greater. The text says that he was interacting with both Stoics and Epicureans. Often when we talk about the biblical landscape, we talk about Jews and Gentiles as if these were two homogenous groups, but the Gentiles were made up of many, many different kinds of people with lots of different religions and philosophies and ways of looking at the world. And, and the Stoics and the Epicureans, while they occupied the same city, had a very different philosophy and a very different way of looking at the world. The Stoics were pantheistic. What that means is they believed everything was God, that God was all around them uh, and, and was manifest in everything. And, and he's an impersonal force. To even call him a he would be wrong. It was more of an it. It's more like this river of fate simply uh, flowing, and you're, you're being carried along by this river. They believed that everything was marked down in advance, that everything was going to happen, everything that did happen was going to happen, and there was no way to change it because this pantheistic force surrounded them and moved them. As a result, the key to happiness for Stoics was just to accept what is, to suppress both fear and desire. They didn't believe in an afterlife, just here. And so their goal was to, to stop being afraid, to suppress fear, to stop having desire, because desiring something other than what you have is a source of great suffering. So today, when we talk about somebody being stoic, this word is still used in our language today. We're talking about somebody who, who doesn't exhibit strong emotional reactions, right? If somebody's stoic, they, they don't show a great amount of sorrow or a great amount of happiness. They're, they're very even-keeled, and that's kind of this idea that they, they kind of suppressed it because they were meant, they, they desired the key to happiness was to be content. Epicureans, on the other hand, were polytheistic. That means they believed in many, many different individual gods. Everything wasn't God. There were just many, many different gods. And, and these gods were not involved in daily life. They were distant and they were distracted. And that was the best way for them to be. <laughs> because when they got involved in human life, it, it produced bad things. It, it produced suffering. And so the key was just to kind of keep them satisfied and, and distracted. So they were polytheistic. 
The Epicureans were, at their heart, materialistic. They, they believed everything was made up of atoms, material. Even the soul, the human soul, was made up of atoms. And so when you died, you simply dissolved back into the atomic state. You, you ceased to be. There was no afterlife for the Epicureans. And so for the Epicureans, this life is all there is. Matter is all there is. And, and so while the Stoics sought to suppress desire, Epicureans sought to indulge them. They were an interesting form of, of hedonists. Now, I wouldn't necessarily classify them with modern hedonists because they defined joy and pleasure a little bit differently, but, but at the heart, that's what they were. They, they believed that pleasure was the greatest good. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Neither the Stoics nor the Epicureans believed in an afterlife. So to hear somebody talking about resurrection was ridiculous to them. Like it just made no sense to them. They had no concept of personal sin. They had no concept of being held personally accountable to some deity, some God, because God was either an inanimate force or or a collection of distracted and distant gods to whom they didn't necessarily have to give an account. So think about how challenging it must have been for Paul to approach them with the gospel. How do you even find common ground in which to start talking? Because you're, even your idea of a monotheistic God, that there is one supreme sovereign God and no other gods, is an incredibly foreign idea to this culture. But here's the thing. He had been entrusted a message. And it was his job to deliver it. It was his job to persuade people that it was true. So how do you do it in a setting like this, right? Where people perceive the source of life, the purpose of life, the nature of God all differently than you. The easiest thing would have been just to stick to the synagogues, just to stick with the Jewish people. We'll just go preach to the Jews because that's the easiest place. We can actually have a conversation about the Messiah, about Jesus there. All those people out there, man, I don't even know how to start with them, right? They don't even necessarily believe in in God. How do you share the gospel with people who aren't like you, who don't assume the same things you assume? How do you share the gospel with people who start the conversation assuming you're crazy? Well, let's take a look at how Paul addressed the challenge, because I think it's going to be enlightening for us. As we move through this sermon, there are a few clear principles that I think come out. First, Paul clearly knew his audience. Paul clearly knew his audience because he had studied them. He had humbly listened to the questions that that culture was asking. Right? This is a big deal, because in verse 16, it says that when Paul walked through the marketplace, he was provoked. As a Jewish man, he had been shaped to be offended by idolatry. He had been shaped to be offended by temples and false gods and the sacrifices and the pagan worship rituals. They provoked him to disgust and to anger. As he walked through the marketplace as a Jewish man, he was in his heart, it says, provoked. And yet he still watched, studied, learned listened. And we see that because he starts his sermon by establishing common ground with his hearers. In verse 22 and 23, it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. See, he didn't start out looking for what he could condemn. He wasn't starting out with his offense. He was starting out looking to discover what he could affirm. And he did that. He begins by, hey, I can see that you guys are very religious. I get that, man. I relate with that. You guys are passionate about this, and you are devoted to this. You are a very religious people. You're very thorough. I get that. In fact, you're so thorough, you have an altar to an unknown God. Now, as polytheists, they were afraid they had left one out, right? There were many, many gods, and and they were sure they hadn't discovered them all. And remember, their goal was basically to keep the gods distant and distracted. And you did that by pacifying them through, through worship. And so they're like, all right, we're sure we missed one, so we'll set up an altar to the unknown god, so when he shows up, he won't get angry. Right? So they worshiped this altar of the unknown God with the purpose of keeping the gods distant and distracted. Well, he saw this as a bridge. He came to this and he saw this and he examined it and he thought, man, this is a bridge. This is where I'll start. This unknown God, that's the one I'm proclaiming to you. That's the one I'm talking about. See, what Paul is doing here is called contextualization. Contextualization requires you to listen to the context of the culture before you speak into it. As a believer, when you want to share the gospel, it requires you to listen to the context so that when you speak, you're speaking effectively into that context. It means you begin with listening. You start asking, what what questions are people asking? Like, what are the real heart questions that are driving them in this culture, in this community. You don't assume what their questions are. You don't assume what their challenges are. You listen. And in listening, you learn. And as you learn, you learn what language they use to explore spiritual things. And and you learn what arguments carry weight with them and which arguments don't. And and, and as you do that, it allows you to, to speak in a way that you can be heard. You may be thinking, Steve, that sounds like you're really just trying to figure out how to tell people what they already want to hear, and and that's absolutely not true. To paraphrase Tim Keller, who wrote a book called Center Church, he said, contextualization is about seeking to give the Bible's answers, which people may or may not want to hear, to the questions they are asking in ways they can understand. So I'm trying to give the Bible's answers to the questions people are asking but doing it in a way they can actually understand and and hear so that that I'm not getting in the way of the message. What good is it if you're answering questions that nobody's asking? (laughs) That's exactly what we're doing when we don't listen and we assume we know what people think before we've even listened to what they think, right? Billy Graham was an incredibly effective evangelist in the 1950s and 1960s. He gave a sermon which became a tract, which became a program, which became the name of his broader ministry, and it was really all about finding peace with God. It connected deeply with the American culture of the 1960s. I mean, think about it, man. You think about the 1960s. People are all carrying around signs, 
peace, you know, peace this, peace that. People were longing for personal peace. They were longing for cultural peace. That was, that was a deep cultural question. And so as he talked about finding peace with God, it connected deeply with an American culture that longed for personal and cultural peace. The reality is that's not as effective today. If you take Billy Graham's evangelistic material and just wholesale try to use it, you walk up to people today and and you're like, hey, how would you like to find peace with God? They're probably going to go, I'm not sure God even exists. And even if he does, I think think I'm all right, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's just not the question people are asking today. But if you were to ask, do you want to know how God promises to bring justice to an unjust world? If you ask, do you want to know how God calls for an end to systemic injustice and equips us for racial reconciliation? Those are questions that are going to connect. People may not trust you, but they're going to look at you (laughs) because you're echoing the questions they already have in their heart back to them. And they may not be eager and willing to receive the answer that you're going to give to them, but you've at least created a connection with them by understanding the heart questions that are driving that. What you're saying is, I have a message from God that answers those questions. You guys, we need to begin by listening. We need to begin by, we we need to step off the the, the arrogant bandwagon of the, of the Christian elite, which basically says, I already know what you're asking, and I already know how to... I've got, an, I've got an answer for every question you're not asking. I've got a rebuttal for every argument you're not bringing. And I win a lot of arguments, but I'm not winning a lot of souls. We need to be listening and entering into genuine conversation that requires us to approach in humility. It allows us to, it requires us to approach as learners, not people who are reacting to what we find offensive and getting angry at things we don't like or becoming morally um, whatever. We need to listen. And when we listen, then we need to struggle to figure out how to give answers in a way that they can understand, right? And that's what Paul does next. Paul sought to communicate in a way that made sense to his listeners, right? Take a look at verses 24 and 25. And then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It seems to me that Paul is really addressing the concerns of the Epicureans in this argument. The Epicureans were trying to find uh, meaning and purpose and happiness by escaping fear. But their need to worship the gods to keep them distant and distracted was driven by fear. They were operating in fear, trying to run away from fear. And Paul is like, you guys try so hard to keep these guys distant and distracted. You work so hard to keep them disinterested. But the God I'm talking about, the true God, He's not dependent on your service. He doesn't need you to serve Him. He's not dependent on your actions, and that means He's not going to get angry when you don't do it right. He doesn't need anything from you. In fact, He's already benevolent towards you. 
He's already given you your life and your breath and your food, everything. This God is already benevolent towards you. You're working so hard to appease these gods. But the true God is already inclined in love towards you. In verses 26 and 27, he shifts uh, the focus and, and I think really starts addressing the concerns of the Stoics, right? In verse 26 and 27, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God in the hope that they may feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. He's like, you guys believe in fate. You believe in this big river of time that is, you're powerless to control. It's just carrying you along. It is this impersonal force that surrounds us, that leads us, that ultimately controls us. You believe in fate and that the key to happiness is just to be resigned to float along with the current, but I'm telling you that it's not fate. It's God. God, the one creator God, he isn't just an impersonal force. He's a person. And he is in control of all things. But he loves you. And he wants to have relationship with you. Listen, he is near you. That language is really, really loaded. It would have been to the Stoic listener because they thought of this pantheistic God as being all around them at all times. And he's saying, that's true, but it is not an impersonal force. It is a personal God who is in control of all things and is benevolent toward you. He's drawing near to you because he wants you to draw near to him. And then he quotes from one of their poets, verses 28 and 29. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He quotes Epimenides, a, a poet from the island of Crete. What this tells us is that Paul had spent time in their literature. I'm guessing he didn't read it because he was personally fascinated by it. As a Jewish man who had been shaped by Jewish thought and Jewish education, the Gentile culture was not something that would have been... Um, probably personally appealing that he would do for personal pleasure. He studied it. He studied it. And I'm not saying he didn't enjoy it. Maybe he found things that were beautiful in it because all human culture is a glorious ruin, glorious in that it reflects the, the kingdom of God and a ruin in that it reflects the brokenness of the human mind and heart. But he had spent time in their literature. The fact that he could quote it in a context that made sense means that he understood it. He quotes their poets back to them. Now, I want you to get this, you guys. This isn't Paul trying to impress them. This isn't Paul like, hey, you guys, I know your language. I know your poets. Let me throw a quote at you, right? He's actually quoting it in a way that makes sense. He's not doing it to impress them. He's doing it to communicate effectively with them. You guys, we shouldn't be at war with the culture around us. We should be students of it. The TV shows, the movies, the music, the books. We should be students of our culture. Now, now, there are two mistakes we can make. One is to reject the culture and be afraid of it, which is the, the, the past Christian culture response. 
right? Don't consume that stuff. We'll make our own little copy of it that, <laughs> kind of like a Xerox copy. It's a bad copy, but, but, you know, you go over here, we'll keep you entertained and distracted. Just stay out of this stuff. That's one mistake. The other mistake is to become mindless consumers. I think that is honestly where we're more inclined to go today. To just consume the same things the, that the rest of the world is consuming, but to do it mindlessly without having a critical eye, without having a critical mind to understand what it's actually saying because our art reflects our heart. Our art reflects the deep cultural tensions that, that we as a people are wrestling with. As we engage, as we read, as we look, we should do it critically, intentionally, to listen and to learn. I want to remind you, Paul was offended by what he studied at times. But he was still a humble student. His, humble didn't trans- his, 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 his offense didn't translate into condemnation. Translated into a greater zeal to see people delivered from the bondage that was enslaving them. So as he communicated with them, he tried to remove every offense other than the gospel. He wasn't up there talking about his Jewish heritage. He wasn't up there talking about the Jewish God. He wasn't up there talking about how great the covenants of promise was and how great a privilege it was to be a Jewish man. All of those things would have given an offense before he would have even been able to give the gospel. He, He spoke to the questions they were asking in a way they could hear, but he didn't pull back from the offense of the gospel. Paul brought the offense of the gospel so that he could also bring the comfort of the gospel. Verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul sought to remove all the unnecessary offenses of the gospel so that he could bring the proper offense of the gospel. Here's the thing, you guys. The good news of the gospel is only good news if you know you need it, right? If the doctor shows up and says, hey, you're well, and you're like, I already knew that. Thanks. Not really good news. But if he told you last week you had cancer, and then he shows up and says, hey, you're well, that is overwhelmingly good news. The good news is good to those who need it. You guys, there is an offense in the gospel. It is an offense to our pride and to our self-sufficiency because the gospel tells us we have offended a personal God. We fall short of the holiness of God in our selfishness, self-focused motivation, self-focused desire for pleasure. We misrepresent the image of God that God placed in us. And as a result, we are accountable. As a result, we are responsible. The bad news is really bad. But it is the bad news that allows us to see how good news, how good the good news actually is. So Paul's telling them, you guys, God isn't an idol. He's not an impersonal force. He's not some localized deity who has localized authority. He is the real, universal creator of all things. He is personal and he is powerful and he is judge. 
and there will be a day of accountability. But God has sent a Savior, one who rose from the dead, because he went into your death for you and rose from the dead that he might deliver you from death. You guys, he knew this would offend them both because it was an offense to their pride, but also because it was an idea that seemed crazy to them. The idea of the resurrection was ridiculous to both the Stoics and the Epicureans. And as a result, they were offended, right? In verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. (laughs) They made fun of him. For some of you, that's your greatest fear, that someone might mock you. That was the natural result. Even though he contextualized the gospel, even though he answered the questions, their hearts were asking in a way they could hear and understand. There were still some people who found the answer offensive and laughable. And so some mocked him. But you know what? They did it for the right reason. They did it because they were offended by the gospel, not because they were offended by Paul. They did it because the message challenged them in ways they didn't want to be challenged or was a message that they couldn't yet receive. They didn't do it because Paul himself had been offensive. Paul himself had gotten in the way of the gospel. You guys, there are two errors we can make when it comes to the offense of the gospel. We can bring the wrong offense We can bring no offense. And both of those um, are going to hinder our ability, obviously, to share the gospel with others, right? We bring the wrong offense when we make the gospel about our cultural convictions and personal comfort. Um, (laughs) Like the dude who who is standing in a public restaurant and uh, is determined to give thanks for his family's meal, and so he does it standing up very loudly in a way that interrupts everybody's conversations around them and draws a lot of attention to himself. If you were to ask him uh, on the side, he would probably be very proud of this behavior and say, I am just standing for Christ in a culture that has abandoned him. And it's like, no, man, you're, you're really just standing for your weirdness. You're getting in the way of the gospel. People aren't being offended by Jesus when you do that. They're offended because you're interrupting their conversations. People aren't offended by the gospel when you do that. They're offended that you are inserting yourself arrogantly and and, and, and in, in, in in an abrasive way into their lives. You're not speaking of the gospel. You're not sharing the truth of Christ. You are you are offending people with your behavior, not the message of the gospel. Even as you pat yourself on the back for making yourself the issue and not Jesus. So we make a mistake when we make ourselves the issue. Our personal grievances, our petty offenses, our our, uh, dislike of whatever moral behavior that we find dislikable. We bring the wrong offense. But the other problem, you guys, is just as important when we bring no offense. I think it's popular today to talk about living the gospel instead of sharing the gospel. Right? You'll have people say things like, you know what, I'm just going to love people. I'm going to love people. That's the gospel. I'm just going to love them. I'm going to love them until they are loved. 
I'm going to love them so that they just know I'm there to love. And I'm going to like be nice, non-offensive. Like I'm going to be the most non-offensive, non-offensive person ever. I will give people rides and I will help them build things and I will give money away sometimes and I just will be nice. And your attempt to not offend, you never actually bring the offense of the gospel. There's a popular quote from St. Francis that we hear a lot, preach Jesus and if necessary, use words. That's really, really stupid. For two reasons. One, St. Francis didn't say it. He didn't. And the second is that it's just stupid. It's just not true. You guys, we've been entrusted a message. We've been entrusted a message. A message is made up of words. You can't deliver a message to someone without telling it to them. What are we going to do an interpretive dance? What does that mean? How you interpret it. In your attempt not to be offensive, you've stopped being a messenger. You've been entrusted with a message. Now, are you supposed to live out the message? Absolutely. Are you supposed to love people and embody the message of grace? Absolutely. So that the words coming out of your mouth aren't contradicted by the message coming out of your life. But the words still need to come out of your mouth. If a message is going to be delivered, a message must be spoken. We've been given a sacred story. And the power of God resides in that sacred story. If we aren't sharing the message, we aren't sharing the gospel. Paul shared the message, even though he knew it would be offensive. Even though while he was standing there in the Areopagus and he had, he had the, the, the magistrate listening to him and he had the gallery of, who knows, 100, 150 people, 200 people, who knows. He had all these people listening to him, eager to hear his words. He understood that at the proper time, he needed to speak the offensive words. The words that were going to, in fact, alienate this warm and friendly crowd, the ones that were so interested in hearing him speak, So he did. And as a result, some were offended. But here's the thing. Let me ask you, was this successful? Was this a a successful missionary endeavor? Well, it really kind of depends on how you measure success, right? When Peter preached a sermon in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people became believers in a day. So if that's your benchmark, you're measuring by numbers. This is, this is not very successful, right? What was the result of, of Paul's sermon, verse 34? But some men joined and believed him, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. I think the text kind of indicates that those two that were named actually became believers during the sermon. Like actually became believers while he, he shared the gospel in this context and that others joined them um, later. So you had two converts. One uh, was part of the council, so that was one out of 30. So there were 30 in the council, the magistrate. And then one leading woman in the, the gallery of 100, 150, 200, we don't know. So we'll just say two out of 200 
became believers, was that successful? Here's the thing. Paul wasn't measuring success by size. He was measuring success by faithfulness. Because he trusted the message. The message carries its own power. See, as messengers, our job is to deliver the message, not guarantee results. Our job is to be faithful, creative, intelligent, persuasive messengers. Trusting that the message carries its own power. The results aren't up to us. We're not salesmen trying to close a deal. We are messengers delivering a sacred message that is imbued with the very power of God. There have been times in my life where I've stopped sharing the gospel because I didn't see results. I was watching a, a, a woman speak in, in TED Talks, and, and uh, I don't remember who she was, but she was an artist, and she was talking about how she was working to help introduce people back into the arts because as adults, they had grown distant from it. She said a lot of people really long. They would love to draw. They would love to paint, but whenever they pick up a pen or a pencil and put it to paper, man, they draw like a fifth grader, and, and they just get discouraged, right? And, and she would often ask them, well, when's the last time you actually really tried to draw? And they'd be like, well, I, I guess it was when I was in fifth grade. Well, that makes sense, right? Her point was clear. You, you can't get better at something that you don't practice. See, we often mistake a lack of effort in developing our gift for a lack of the gift. There are many people in this room that think, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And it's because you gave up in fifth grade. It's because you stopped practicing the talent of contextualization, growing into your ability to intuitively understand where people were at spiritually and emotionally, how to discern the questions of their heart, learning how to speak the truth of the Word of God effectively into the context of their lives. I think there are could be many fine artists, even great ones, if they would simply apply themselves and be willing to make mistakes and start at their fifth grade level and grow their talent. And I think that is exactly what could happen with us in sharing our faith. You know, when I first became a believer, I was overcome with gratitude and joy. I mean, it really was when I believed the gospel it was like a light was turned on. It was night and day. It was radical change in my heart and in my mind. And man, I just found chances to share my faith. I would go to, to homeless shelters that were run by Christian organizations, and I would be standing there as people were eating their food, trying to, to preach the gospel to them. Um, I was writing letters to old friends who were unbelievers. I, I even joined a, a mime ministry. That happened. Um, I was out miming at a beer festival. They're getting drunk. I'm miming the gospel message. It wasn't very effective. I had a lot of zeal, but I didn't have a lot of talent. And so I decided it wasn't my gift. 
I shared and I shared and I shared and I wasn't seeing much response. And so I decided, man, I guess this isn't my thing. You guys, it was many years later that I realized that spiritual gifts don't show up fully developed. Like natural talents, they have to be worked on and practiced and matured. You have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to learn and to grow. And like any other gift, you have to be willing to be a beginner before you can operate in the full strength and maturity of the gift. So there are lessons here for us, you guys. Let me just ask you a question. Are you willing to have a hundred conversations for one person to become a believer? Is their well-being important enough to you? Is the blessing and the power of God being let loose in their heart important enough to you that you're willing to have a hundred unsuccessful conversations? And by unsuccessful, I mean they result in, in no noticeable response. People mocking you, people rejecting you, people saying, well, I'll hear you again on this matter, but not really responding to you. Are you willing to have a hundred conversations that one might respond? Guys, Jesus left heaven and became a man so that he could live the message, not just deliver it, live the message, so that he could live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die and then rise again so that those who would believe in him might not be anchored and enslaved to the broken life that was theirs in sin, but might be set free into the power and hope of the resurrection. And he put all the blessings of that event into this message of good news. He had a thousand conversations. And he made 12 disciples. And then he said to those 12, go and do it again. Be disciples who make disciples. Do it again and again and again and again. You go have a thousand conversations that you might make 12 disciples. I've told you, now you go tell others. This message cost Christ his life. This message changed my life. How can we not share it with You guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and um, put some reflection questions up on the screen. Uh, we'll share communion in a moment, but we'll introduce that then. Let me just pray for us. Father, we thank you for the incredible generosity of the gospel. <laughs> that you didn't just send us a messenger. You sent yourself that you, you sought to bridge the gap. Even as Paul said, God is not far from any one of us. He has drawn near so that we might draw near to him. Man, Lord, I thank you for the humility that you demonstrated as you 
set aside your glory and stepped out of your comfort that you might step into our pain and bear the consequence of our sin. And I thank you, Lord, that you extend to us the great riches of resurrection, that we might be made new, that we might have hope, that we might be forgiven and set free. Father, I confess to you that I am often more selfishly focused on my comfort than I am on other people's need. I confess to you that there are times that I allow the fear of man, my desire not to be mocked, to lead me to hold my tongue, spirit, when you are leading me to speak. I confess my weakness, my fear, my shortcoming, knowing, Lord, that the very gospel I've been called to share is the very gospel that frees me, forgives me, empowers me, and makes me new. I thank you, Lord, that you love me, that you love each one of us, and that in your love you send us out that others might taste that love. Let us be bold, and let us be joyful with the message you've entrusted to us. You guys take a few minutes to pray. We'll share communion in a moment.